and for the love of the Holy Spirit that is impacting our hearts. Father, we ask you to bless the study of your word now today. I ask that you'll give us open minds and hearts. We all need the teaching of your spirit every moment of every day to be strong and to be faithful and to live as you would have us do in this world which is shot through with sin. Help us, Lord, to be faithful people. And Father, I pray that your spirit will have his way in Christ's name. Amen. If you will open in the book of Genesis to chapter 45 uh, and verse 16. Genesis 45, verse 16. Now when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your beasts and go to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. You shall eat of the fat of the land. Now you are ordered, Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. And do not concern yourselves with your goods, for the best of the land of Egypt is yours. We have been spending the last several weeks in this drama of uh, Joseph revealing himself to his brothers. And it's, I think, been very eye-opening to us to understand the uh, the emotions, the truths, the working of God's Spirit so long ago in a way so similar to that which we can and should experience in our lives today. In verse 16 of this passage, we have a reference back to the second verse of the same chapter when apparently one of or more of Joseph's servants ran over to Pharaoh's palace to tell him what was going on, or to tell the servants at least in Pharaoh's house, what was going on over in Joseph's palace at the time that uh, Joseph was giving this great emotional outburst as he was telling his brothers who he really was. And what's interesting here is that uh, the servants were so taken by all of this that they would, without uh, being informed or told to do this, run over and, and make this announcement into to the servants in Pharaoh's house. I think by now, if you go back to the uh, verse 15, you find that, that Joseph and his brothers were told were just calmly talking together. And when that happened, I think what happened was Joseph asked his servants to come back and to begin to carry out their normal duties. He remember, he had sent them all out from the place where he was meeting with his brothers. And as he brought his servants back together, the, he probably told them who these men were. And as a result now, more accurate news is taken over to Pharaoh's house. These are Joseph's brothers. And what I think is really fascinating here is the response of Pharaoh to this whole thing. Spar uh, Pharaoh, we're told, is delighted. It, it's, it's a joyful thing for him to hear that Joseph's brothers are here. And what this tells us, in part, is how much he esteemed Joseph, that he considered Joseph's brothers and their contact and visit here to be such an important thing, even in his own heart and mind. I think it's exciting to see that God is at work here. God is at work in the heart of a pagan pharaoh 
and he is putting into that man's heart to do exactly what Joseph was purposing in his heart to do for his family, which certainly God put in his heart too. But it's much easier for a true believer to receive what God wants than it is for one who is not a believer. I think that as we look at that event and we think of God speaking through Pharaoh to bless his people, that we see again one of the many statements in Scripture referring to God's eminence and to God's providence. The God we serve is not like the God of the Hindu, who is simply an impersonal world spirit. He is not the God of the deist, who, although great and mighty, is so far away he can't impact this world or doesn't impact this world. But we have a God who personally cares for us, who walks with us, who cares about the events in our everyday life. I don't have this particular passage on the outline, but I'd like to just read a few verses from the seventh chapter of Deuteronomy because I think that these verses also illustrate God's providence. You know, I think there are times when we're tempted to feel like God is a long ways away, that God isn't really all that personal. It's, it's easy, I think, for us to think of God in a head way and not, just, and not also in a heart way to know the facts about God, but not to experience the reality of God, to know the power of God's Spirit in our lives. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 13, we read, And he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of, the gra of your ground, your grain and your new wine and your oil, in the increase of your herd and the young of your flock, in the land which he swore to your forefathers to give to you. You shall be blessed above all the peoples. There shall be no male or female barren among you or among your cattle. And the Lord will remove from you all sickness. And he will not put on you any of the harmful diseases of Egypt which you have known, but he will lay them on all who hate you. And that is a powerful statement of a personal God dealing in a personal way with his people, caring individually about them because you, you notice the passage says not one single individual will be barren. Every person's animals and crops will be abundant and will be blessed. And the diseases which they saw put upon Egypt as a punishment, as a, as a lever to get Israel out of Egypt, they will not experience those same diseases and those same disasters because a personal God is caring for them personally. To me, that's really exciting because we in America are accustomed to being individualists. No, it's, it's me against the elements. And that's been the tradition. Go west, young man, and carve out your little, uh, your little uh, fief or your little piece of land out there by the strength of your own hand and fight off the Indians and fight off the wild animals. And, you know, it's, it's been a long tradition of that. Rather than a tradition of dependence upon a sovereign God who cares and who will meet the needs that we have if we, what, put first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, as we're told in the Gospels. The wording of verse 17, 
I think makes it clear that Joseph did not speak with Pharaoh ahead of time or in any way make contact with Pharaoh about what he wanted done, that it was God who put in Pharaoh's heart, as he had Joseph's, the plan for Joseph's family. But I think it's very, very important that the order came from Pharaoh. And this, I think, should not be missed. Because the order came from the man who was the God King of Egypt. As I've mentioned to you before, Pharaoh was considered to be divine. He was connected with Horus, the falcon-headed god, who often was confused amongst the Egyptians as being really the high god of their pantheon. And so he was kind of like the son of God in their view. So for this god king to give these orders that Joseph's family come from Egypt and live in the land and be given the best of the land would be accepted by the Egyptians, but not if it was purely Joseph who gave that order and caused it to happen, because many, especially other Egyptian high officials who might have had some jealousy about the uh, power given to Joseph. Remember the situation with Daniel? When Daniel was elevated to a high position, there were other satraps in the land of the Persian Empire who were very jealous of him in that position of power, and so they convinced the emperor to make laws that they were using, going to use to try to destroy Daniel. Well, you can believe that in spite of the fact Joseph had clearly the leading of the Lord and that Joseph had been used to, to uh, save the land of Egypt, there still are going to be jealous high officials in the government who feel that he, being a foreigner, has no right. And so if he were the, to be the one to make the declaration to bring his family and put him in the best of the land, and he did it all on his own, they could have said, look, he is practicing nepotism. He's using his position uh, of power to benefit his family. Now, certainly, nepotism was probably widely practiced in the Egyptian government as it is in almost every government in history. But for Joseph to do it, the enemy would use that then as a tool to... Uh, create greater jealousy and attack upon Joseph. So it's very, very important that the Pharaoh be the source of this order for Joseph's family to be brought into Egypt and to be given the best of the land. I think as Pharaoh gave this order, several thoughts may have gone through his mind. First of all, since Joseph was such a godly and wise man, certainly his family must have had something to do with that. And so his family must be somewhat of an unusual family. So it would be good to have that family in our midst. He may have thought that. He may also have thought that by inviting Joseph's family into the land and giving them a place to live, that he and the nation of Egypt were giving thanks to Joseph and to Joseph's God by doing this, this, uh, this act of, or this gift for Joseph's family. I think also he was probably very delighted to discover Joseph had a family. Because remember, he pulled him up out of a prison where he had been a slave servant, a prisoner. And now he is shown to have a family, a family whose father was a, a sheik, a chieftain uh, of a tribe. And this probably made Pharaoh feel a little better about the whole thing, knowing that Joseph did have a past of some significance. Well, Pharaoh gives the order, as we read in this passage, 
for his brothers, for Joseph's brothers, to load their animals with food and return to Canaan. They were to pack up the whole clan, everything that they had, and then remove themselves down to the land of Egypt. Come to me, come to Pharaoh, uh, he said. It seems like Pharaoh has a second thought after he's made all these orders and thinks, well, I better provide adequate transportation for them. So then he says, and take wagons with you and, uh, so that your wives and your children can, be travel, can travel in comfort. At least that must be implied here. The wagons were actually two-wheeled carts. They weren't wagons as we think of a wagon uh, later on in history. Uh, the two-wheel cart is common in Egyptian history. It shows up many times in the wall tomb art that uh, is common in the land of Egypt. The word which is the root word for this cart is also the root word for a male calf. And so we're probably talking about an ox-drawn cart. Hence, we're talking about an ox cart here. In verse 20 of this passage which we read this morning, Pharaoh urged them not to look with longing at their goods. Their, the, the, actually, the word there in the Hebrew is their vessels, implying their, uh, their pottery and their utensils, which they would use for, for cooking and for eating and storage and so forth. But to just leave all that behind, don't bring it, because I'm going to give you better here in the land of Egypt. I'm going to give you the finest that we have available. Kind of interesting how that's a very practical thing for Pharaoh to suggest because the, probably the heaviest thing they had to move in those days was the pottery, all the pottery in which they cooked and stored things. And it was not only heavy, but it was fragile. It would be an encumbrance in moving. So just being able to leave it all behind and to get new down in Egypt would be a great blessing uh, for them. So what we find here is God is using Pharaoh to bless his people even in little practical ways such as that. I think it's interesting that the most common item found on most Near Eastern archaeological digs uh, is potsherds, or are pots, potsherds, broken pieces of pottery. Certainly because, you know, it's been fired and it's hard, it resists the weathering of the elements and therefore lasts longer. But Potsherds have been found in virtually every archaeological dig in the Near East, even to the point where they've developed a whole chart of pots and pottery, and uh, we use that to determine the age and the style and, and the people who probably produced this form of pottery, and it's a guide for establishing the civilizations of the ancient Near East. What Pharaoh's commands ultimately amounted to was the adoption of Joseph's family. Come down to me, and I will provide you with the best of the land. He was adopting the family, and therefore they were receiving royal treatment. Verse 21 of chapter 45, Then the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them he gave changes of garments, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. To his father he sent as follows, <coughs> 10 donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and sustenance for his father on the journey. 
So he sent his brothers away, and they departed. He said to them, Do not quarrel on the journey. Then after they went up from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and indeed he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. But he was stunned, for he did not believe them. When they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Then Israel said, It is enough, my son Joseph is alive. I will go and see him before I die. Some ways kind of the culmination of the story, not ultimately, of course, that would be in the actual meeting of Jacob and Joseph, but certainly uh, the drama plays itself to this, this point of, of crescendo, if you will, when Jacob finally learns that Joseph truly is alive. Joseph's brothers gladly comply with Pharaoh's orders. Now, they had been wanting to leave the land long before, but now they're leaving with a with, with totally different attitude and understanding. And no longer do they have the fear, of course, of Joseph because... He is their brother. Now, they have certain little hidden away in the back of their mind little fears that show up later on. But nevertheless, their whole demeanor is changed. Joseph took the animals and the carts from the royal fleet, if you will, and loaded everything to provide adequate food for the journey back to Canaan and then the return to Egypt. But Joseph was not satisfied with just saying, all right, let's load all these animals up and let's get you out of here. He wanted to give his brothers gifts. See, this is an expression of love. Love produces the desire to bless the one loved or the ones loved. And so Joseph gives to his brothers special gifts. He gives to them simla, which in translation means dress clothing. He doesn't give them, you know, Levi's and a t-shirt. He gives them fine garments to wear. He gives them some of the highest quality Egyptian dress of that particular time. Festive garments to wear. Sort of mantles like uh, bright coats, coats of linen to, to be worn. And probably these garments were were to be worn as they returned back to the land of Egypt. So as they rolled into Egypt with all these goods and their whole family, Egyptians didn't get nervous about these heathen, or, or not heathen, but these uh, foreigners coming into the land because they would all be dressed like Egyptians. And so that would take away much of their fear, probably. The use of the plural here seems to imply that he gave to each of his brothers at least two changes of garments, but... We're told he gave to his brother five, his true brother, his full-blooded brother, Benjamin. He gave five changes of garments to his brother. In addition to that, we're told he gave him 300 silver. 300 silver. We could translate it in, into later Hebrew terms, 300 shekels worth of silver. The scripture here, as you read it, says pieces of silver, but you'll notice the words pieces of are in italics. They're not there in the original. So it's just 300 silver. Because, again, as I've mentioned before, the coin had not been invented at this time. So he couldn't have been given 
300 coins of silver because the coin wasn't invented until the 7th century and we're a thousand years before that at this particular time. So he was given a quantity of silver that amounted to 300 of the units of that particular time. And it was probably either in some kind of ornaments or granular form or nuggets or ingots or something of that nature. Joseph was obviously favoring his full-blooded brother, Benjamin. I mean, he was, making, he was making no attempt to hide it. I give to Benjamin five, and you guys two. I give you no silver, I give him 300 silver. He wasn't trying to hide it. Now, first of all, he was doing this because of his intense love for his full-blooded brother, whom he had not seen since he was literally knee-high to a grasshopper. And he, it was just uh, you know, an expression of his deep love. He loved his other brothers, too. But remember, Benjamin had in no way participated in what had happened to Joseph. Whether that played a role or not, we can't be sure here. But Joseph was a human being. And we cannot ascribe to him, uh, you know, deity in any way, shape, or form here. But it's almost certain that he was continuing the test here. His purpose in obviously giving Benjamin more and the other brothers less is to continue the test to, to convince these brothers that they've got to remain in their state of repentance and humility. They've got to recognize that their, their change has been brought about by God and they're bound to be tested along the way and their transformation is only real if it survives the test. To his father, Joseph sent a very special gift. Now to most of us, we would not be particularly pleased if somebody sent us 20 donkeys. <laughs> you know. Uh, I'm, I'm sure we could somehow convert them into cash and that would be okay. But it would be a bit of a problem along the way. But Joseph was sending to Jacob a magnificent gift. Not only the 20 donkeys, but they were loaded with exotic gifts. The first 10, the male donkeys by implication, were loaded with exotic gifts and they were probably non-food items. We're probably talking about wonderful uh, tapest uh, textiles and uh, you know, goldware and other kinds of things that were considered to be luxury items in the land of Egypt, and he was sending them as a gift to his father. Egypt in that day carried on a trade to the south with the land of Cush, which was noted to be a land with many gold mines. It also carried on trade with the island of uh, Crete and the Minoan civilization, which had developed out there. And so this trade certainly enhanced Egypt. And, and we know this because both in Cush and on the island of Crete, Egyptian articles have been found uh, dating back to this period, indicating the trade existed. And so he probably was being given items that were not commonly found in the land of Canaan, but items from what we would call today the Greek world and items from further south in Africa. In addition, 10 female donkeys loaded with food, sufficient food to sustain Jacob and his servants. You know, obviously Jacob wasn't going to eat 10 donkeys worth of food in just the time it took him to get from Canaan back to the land of Egypt. It was for 
uh, his own household, his own servants, those who work directly for him. Well, after assembling all these animals with their burdens, Joseph sent off his brothers with a warning. Remember the warning we read? Do not quarrel on the journey. Seems like an unnecessary thing to say. They've buried the hatchet, if you will. Uh, they've, they've worked through all the emotional and, and spiritual traumas that have been part of their lives for the past 20 years. They have repented before God and repented before Joseph. And, and, and even Benjamin now knows what they have done. And there's been forgiveness. There's been love. There's been tears. Why would they quarrel? Why does Joseph say that? Don't quarrel on your journey. Well, it's very interesting because the Hebrew word which is translated quarrel means to tremble or shake. And often it's used in reference like to the earth, earthquake, earth shake. But in this particular case, it seems that Joseph was saying that they should remember their repentance, remember the commitment that they had made, the new commitment they had made, and the healing of the relationships, and don't revert back to your old ways. Don't revert back to your old ways. Don't do again what you were doing before. We can be transformed in our spirit by the working of God. But these brothers were all adults who had lived many, 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 many years as an adult. And their, their natures had been bent in a certain way. And, and their lifestyle had been exhibited in a certain way and lived in a certain way. And this was kind of like a mold. And the mold was cracking and was, was being broken, but it wasn't gone. You and I are given a new heart, a new life. We become new creatures in Christ. But we still drag old Adam around with us. As long as we're in our body, these same bodies, Adam and Eve, are, are still there with us in effect. And the temptation to revert back to our old way is still there. Satan is out to tempt us to revert, revert, revert to our ungodly ways of the past. Jesus warned Peter that Satan would sift you as wheat. Satan would destroy you. And as we know, say, uh, Paul, Peter, who had uh, made a loud profession that he would go with Christ even to the point of death, had denied him three times. Satan was after him. Satan wanted to destroy him. Satan's goal is to destroy your joy, my joy. His goal is to destroy our peace. He wants to take away the joy of life from us. He wants us to become depressed. He wants us to become cynical. He definitely does not want us to exhibit the reality of God in our, in our lives. And when we give in to cynicism, and when we give in to depression, and, and when we give in to the ways of the flesh, we're giving in to him, to the world, to the flesh, and to the devil. In writing to the Corinthians, Paul said, Since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking as mere men? Are you not walking as you were before you ever came to know Christ? 
if there's jealousy and division and strife in your midst, jealousy is a human attribute that comes from the pit. Strife is not of God. God is the author of peace. Jesus said, my peace I give unto you. But we can avoid Christ's peace and we can be people of strife even though we have been born again. Because it's important, I think, that we recognize that we have to strive after the things of God. It doesn't just happen to us as we sit there. We just sit there, oh, I, I accept you, Christ, as my Savior, and now from now on I'm just going to walk in this little bubble. And uh, nothing's going to cause me to do anything wrong because I'm, I'm now transformed. Well, it's just like the little baby. The little baby is born into this life, but that baby's got to be taught. And that baby has got to be taught the right things. That baby's going to stray along the path as it walks. So it's possible for us to be born again and to allow the flesh to get the upper hand in our lives. And so we must resist and flee. In, in light of that, I, I thought I'd uh, just read briefly from a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6, where Paul, speaking to Timothy, seems to be referring to this idea. Paul in 1 Timothy 6.11 says, But flee from these things, you man of God. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. I mean, that's an active verb, pursue. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal, eternal dominion forever. Notice, pursue, fight, take hold, keep. The, these are actions that have to take place in the life of the believer. If we just do what comes naturally, we're going to walk on the wrong path. We're going to take God where he isn't, doesn't want to be taken, in effect, because he dwells within us. The Spirit of God dwells within us. And when we go to the wrong place and say the wrong thing and do the wrong thing, we're, we're implicating God in a way. People at least say, well, you're, you claim you're a Christian and that's the way you think and that's the way you act and that's what you do. You're no different from anybody else. So we have to actively pursue righteousness and godliness. We have to avoid strife and jealousy. And if we feel that monster of jealousy welling up within us, we've got to give it to God. Put it on the cross, as it were. Because although in, it, it's, a, it's a natural manifestation of the flesh, it's not of God. And it isn't going to do us or anybody else any good. So he is telling his brothers, remember, you're changed people now. You've made this new, 
commitment. You've repented of your sin. You've confessed it before God and before me. You've got to go home now, of course, and confess it before Jacob, but that's what you're going to do. You're different men now. So don't let the devil take away this new work that's happened in your life. Do not let the old strife and jealousies emerge again. It was simply a statement so that they would be on guard. And being on guard is very important for all of us. Because as soon as we let you, have you ever noticed? I'm sure you have. As soon as you let your guard down, whack. It's not like Satan's on the other side of the world and not paying any attention to us and <clears throat> doesn't know when we let our guard down. He's got his little minions everywhere and they know the instant we let our guard down because he has an ally within us, our old flesh. Well, the 11 brothers set off with their own animals all laden with food plus the 20 donkeys they had to take to their father. Quite a caravan. How many ox carts were there sent along? We're not told. But since there were uh, the families of all these brothers to be brought, and the wives and the children, certainly quite a few ox carts were sent, probably more than 11. Which means, although it's not stated, but I think it's implied, Egyptian drivers had to go along with the whole caravan to drive those ox carts back to Canaan and to help them transport all the goods back to the land of Egypt. Well, I think they returned with alacrity, with speed and haste. I think they returned to the land of Canaan to, to, to tell their father, of course, that was a bit of a fearful thing, as they thought about that, certainly, but to go back, they knew their father was worried because they were overdue. And he was certainly worried that something had happened to Benjamin now, and so they were, they were hurrying back and they were bringing all these goodies. I'm sure they were hoping those goodies would help prepare their father uh, for what they had to tell him. And so this great caravan was moving back over the 200 miles between Memphis and, uh, and Hebron. Probably in about 10 days, they made the journey back. Can you imagine what those 10 days were like? There was a lot of joy involved, but that joy was constantly tempered by the fact We've got to tell dad. He's going to find out we've lied to him for 20 years. It's not that we've just lied to him like we broke a window and we lied to him 20 years ago. I mean, we've lied to him that his beloved son's been dead, torn by wild beasts. And we have not done anything to take away that hurt in the heart of our father. So I think one of the things they may have discussed was, who's going to tell dad? Who's going to break the news to Jacob? Well, it's not said, but I think that the weight of the evidence would be that Judah would be the one who would break the news to his father. He had been the one who led the way through this time of repentance and this time of new commitment. And I think he said, boys, <laughs> brothers, I'll take that responsibility, and I'll do it. I think Reuben was probably too chicken, and Simeon and Levi probably couldn't find it within themselves to do it. Reuben, that is Judah, was the most changed of all of them. I think he took the ta task for himself. Could you think of a more shocking message to bring to the anxious father? He had sent off Benjamin very reluctantly. He didn't want Benjamin to go. He's afraid that Benjamin would never come back. But he sent Benjamin. 
And now they were overdue. Where's Benjamin? Where are they? He was concerned about Simeon too because Simeon had been jailed down there. Will I ever see Simeon again? I hope he will come back soon. Can you imagine? Can you kind of put yourself in Jacob's place when somebody shouted, they're coming. I see them coming over the horizon. They had, of course, get close enough so they could identify that's the right caravan that was coming. They didn't have any binoculars, you know, or, or uh, telescopes. They had to just use their eyes to, uh, to see who was coming. Did Jacob's heart race or what? No. Are they all there? He probably kept saying, how many are there? <laughs> are there 11? Well, no, there are more than 11. <laughs> In fact, there's all these carts. There's twice as many animals as we sent. Are you sure it's my sons? Yep, can't mistake them, it's your sons. I think it was kind of as they got closer, one, two, three, four, five. You know, are they all there? Uh, you know, I'll worry about the carts later and I'll worry about all these animals later. I want to know, are my 11 sons there? And when they were all there, of course, there was a joyful reunion. As the father greeted them all, and the boys were, I think, displaying already a different temperament. They were more joyful in the presence of their father than they had been before. But early on, Judah had to say, Dad, you need to sit down. Got something to tell you. And the news was related as we read it in verse 26. For a man who had had such high hopes for his son. Remember the scripture says he pondered in his heart the dreams that Joseph had had about the fact that he and his wives and his sons would bow before Joseph. Such high hopes for this son, and who had had to for 20 years deal with the fact that those hopes were shattered forever, gone. Judah's words must have been like a <coughs> bolt out of the blue. I think if there'd have been a doctor around, he'd have been there, he'd have had a a hypodermic of adrenaline ready to, to jab it in to Jacob when the news hit him. Joseph is alive. And not only that, he's the ruler of the land of Egypt. I mean, if you were Jacob, what would you say? That's not funny. The scripture says he was stunned. The Hebrew, there, the Hebrew word literally means he grew numb you know, into a catatonic trance as he heard the news. I think his heart almost ceased beating as the brother said, yes, it's true, it's true, we've seen it, it's happened. I think his thoughts were something like this, do you really know how much pain I have suffered over these 20 years? How dare you try to raise a, such an improbable hope within me? Are you just turning the knife in my back. The scripture says flat out, he did not believe them. Now the word for believe in Hebrew implies that in Jacob's mind, the brother's words had no certainty or assurance or firmness in them. They, they were saying words about which they didn't even realize what they were saying. And he was not going to allow himself to accept what they said. Well, I think the brothers then had to sit down and recount the whole story from day one. Do you remember when you sent Joseph to us at Dothan? Do I remember? 
And from that moment on, they had to detail the account of what happened. Can you imagine the pain that Jacob experienced as they said, we sold your son into slavery, into Egypt. In fact, we were going to kill him because he was such a braggart and such a dreamer. And you exalted him over us. I'm sure there was a pain there in Jacob's heart as he heard those words. But the brothers confessed their guilt. We did it, and we know it was wrong. And it was only when they confessed their guilt that they could lay a foundation for Jacob to have faith in their words. Why should he believe their words? They had done nothing for which he should believe them over these many years, especially now that they're confessing what they had done. But this confession put a foundation of faith in there. Certainly they would not say these things to me if they were not true. And then, of course, they said, look, Dad, look. Ox carts, where do you think we got these? We hijacked them on the way? You know? These have been sent by Joseph. And look at these donkeys laden with, with luxury items from the land of Egypt. Look at all this food, more than we could possibly have purchased with the silver that you gave us besides, here's the silver. <laughs> they had that too. Finally, I think, I think ours were involved here. You don't change the heart and mind of a man who has been 20 years convinced that his beloved son was dead, you don't just convince him in five minutes. I think there were hours of emotional expression and conversation here, and Jacob finally allowed himself to believe his sons. He came out of that shell. He had built a shell around him to protect himself from the pain of the loss of Joseph. And notice what the scripture says. The spirit of Jacob revived. It doesn't say that his body revived. It says his spirit revived. He orig his original vitality was, was returning. When he had lost his son Joseph, a part of Jacob had died. His primary hope was gone. So what joy is there in living anymore? My beloved wife is dead. And my beloved son is dead. And all I've got around me are people like Reuben, who's unstable as water, and Simeon and Levi, who will out and butcher a whole population of a city. I mean, what have I got here? My beloved son is dead. But now he's convinced that he's alive, and his joy is returning, and his, his, he's becoming a whole man again, if you will. The word for revive as used in the Hebrew here, refers to spiritual revival. It's not like somebody, you know, given a drink of water who's dying of thirst and they revive. It's a spiritual revival. The return of life to the innermost being of a person. There's a significant passage I'd like for us to turn to for a moment in Isaiah chapter 57, where this word is used. Isaiah 57, beginning at verse 14. And the contrast in this passage from beginning to end is quite significant. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. For thus says the high and exalted one, who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place. And also with the contrite and lowly of spirit. Notice the contrast. 
I live in a high and exalted place, even as Isaiah had seen the Lord high and lifted up in the temple. And yet I also live with the contrite and the lowly of spirit. Why? In order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I will not contend forever, neither will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of those whom I have made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry and struck him, and I hid my face and was angry. And he went on turning away in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners, creating the praise of the lips, peace, peace, to him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord. And I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up refuse in mud. There is no peace, says God, for the wicked. That last, those last two verses contrast with those before, the contrite and lowly, even the contrite and lowly who have walked on a wrong path for a while. God says, come back. I will even give to that person my peace who's afar off. And the implication is I will draw them back to me. I will revive them. I will revive their hearts, the spirit of the lowly and the heart of the contrite. This word is most often used in the Psalms, the word revive. I think it's important to note that it is used in Psalm 119 more times than anywhere else, and it's always used in connection with the word of God. We are not revived by emotional experience. We're not revived by some connection with a group. We're revived by the word of God because it is life. It is what brings peace. It is what brings cleansing. It is God's word that revives the heart and the mind of God's people. In Psalm 119, just uh, two or three verses as examples. Verse 25, My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to thy word. Verse 37, Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in thy ways. Verse 40, Behold, I long for thy precepts. Revive me through thy righteousness. Notice in the chapter in Genesis what happens. As soon as faith is returned to Jacob, the scripture calls him Israel again. Verse 28. He was convinced in his heart as well as his mind, my son lives. And Joseph, Jacob then agreed to do what he had never dreamed in his life he would ever do. Go to Egypt. And now he not only went to Egypt because there was some necessity, he went there with great desire and anticipation because he longed for that moment when he would lay his eyes on his beloved son and embrace the one who had been gone and thought dead for lo these 20 years. Next Sunday we'll begin chapter 46. The trip to Goshen. <laughs>